Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast. The podcast where we do things brilliantly. We're talking about chapter 4 of book 11. Kutuzov is meeting in a hut where anyone can overhear him. Whereas Napoleon meets in very grand places. Uh, What's your interpretation of this? There is a great painting of this chapter called Council at Philly. Council at Philly. F-I-L-I. Um, I would highly recommend Googling Council at Philly, F-I-L-I. Uh, it's by Alexei Kivshenko. Alexei being A-L-E-K-S-E-Y. Alexei Kivshenko. Um, have a look. Definitely do it. Pull your phone out. Type in Council at Philly. Click on Images on Google. And um, yeah, it's a really cool picture. One great thing to note about the picture is... Um, the the little girl who watches the uh, the whole proceeding uh, from on top of I think it says she's on top of a oven or something like that. Um, you can see her in the top left hand of the picture, and then the whole council in this little shack that they were in. Pretty cool, pretty cool picture. Um, have a look. Kara Kikar says I really enjoyed the shift midway through where we see things from Malasha's. Experience. Perspective, Malasha, that was the name of the little girl. I don't know the terrain they were talking about or the ramifications of moving the troops, and neither does Malasha. But I do understand body language and power dynamics, so getting her simplified perspective was helpful. It was helpful, and it was cool that she kind of sided with Kutuzov, or Grandpa, as she called him. Um, I thought that was really cool. Because it kind of justifies if you're siding with Kutuzov, which I think which kind of Tolstoy wants us to. We, he's presenting him as some kind of, you know, the hero the people don't deserve type thing. Um, then it, it to know that a child who's just purely basing their decision off body language um, favours Kutuzov. Really cool. Harry Interview 9102 has this to say. So, interesting to read this passage in light of what is going on in Afghanistan today. Kutuzov. Well, gentlemen, I see that it is I who will have to pay for the broken crockery. Gentlemen, I have heard your views. Some of you will not agree with me, but I, he paused, by the authority entrusted to me by the sovereign and country, order a retreat. When? When did the abandonment of Moscow become inevitable? When was that done which settled the matter? And who was to blame for it? I did not expect this, said he to his adjutant, Schneider, when the latter came in later that night. I did not expect this. I did not want, think this would happen. Um, I don't know as much or anything about it, really. I know that... Um, what's it called? The Taliban have over overtaken Afghanistan. I think I've got that right. Um, yeah, let me just check. Let me Google Afghanistan. Uh, yeah, Taliban. So, I I don't even know really what that means, but I'm sure I'll hear all about it in the coming weeks and months. I am interested to know, by the way, if it sounds like I'm being dismissive. Um, all right. What am I doing? 
Oh yeah, the next chapter. That's what I'm doing. So I'm getting distracted by multiple tabs open on my computer. Here we go. Chapter 5 goes like this. At that very time, in circumstances even more important than retreating without a battle, namely the evacuation and burning of Moscow, Rostopchin, who is usually represented as being the instigator of that event, acted in an altogether different manner from Kutuzov. After the Battle of Borodino, the abandonment and burning of Moscow was as inevitable as the retreat of the army beyond Moscow without fighting. Every Russian might have predicted it, not by reasoning, but by the feeling implanted in each of us and in our fathers. The same thing that took place in Moscow had happened in all the towns and villages on Russian soil, beginning with Smolensk, without the participation of Count Rostopchin and his broadsheets. The people awaited the enemy unconcernedly, did not riot or become excited or tear anyone to pieces, but faced its fate, feeling within it the strength to find what it should do at that most difficult moment. And as soon as the enemy drew near, the wealthy classes went away abandoning their property, while the poorer remained and burned and destroyed what was left. The consciousness that this would be so, and would always be so, was and is present in the heart of every Russian. And a consciousness of this, and a foreboding that Moscow would be taken, was present in Russian Moscow society in 1812. Those who had quitted Moscow already in July and at the beginning of August showed that they expected this. Those who went away, taking what they could and abandoning their houses and half their belongings, did so from the latent patriotism which expresses itself not by phrases or by giving one's children to save the fatherland and similar unnatural exploits, but unobtrusively, simply, organically, and therefore in the way that always produces the most powerful results. It is disgraceful to run away from danger. One Only cowards are running away from Moscow, they were told. In his broadsheets, Rostopchin impressed on them that to leave Moscow was shameful. They were ashamed to be called cowards, ashamed to leave but still they left, knowing it had to be done. Why did they go? Is it impossible to suppose that Rostopchin had scared them by his account of horrors Napoleon had committed in conquered countries? The first people to go away were the rich, educated people who knew quite well that Vienna and Berlin had remained intact and that during Napoleon's occupation, the inhabitants had spent their time pleasantly in the company of the charming Frenchmen, whom the Russians, and especially the Russian ladies, then liked so much. They went away because for Russians there could be no question as to whether things would go well or ill under French rule in Moscow. It was out of the question to be under French rule. It would be the worst thing that could happen. They went away, even before the Battle of Borodino, and still more rapidly after it, despite Rostopchin's calls to defend Moscow, all the announcement of his intention to take the wonder-working icon of the Iberian Mother of God and go to fight, or of the balloons that were to destroy the French, and despite all the nonsense Rostopchin wrote in his broadsheets, they knew that it was for the army to fight, and that if it could not succeed, it would not do to take young ladies and house serfs to the Three Hills quarter of Moscow to fight Napoleon, and that they must go away, sorry as they were 
to abandon their property to destruction. They went away without thinking of the tremendous significance of that immense and wealthy city being given over to destruction for a great city with wooden buildings was certain when abandoned by its inhabitants to be burned. They went away each on his own accord, and yet it was only in consequence of their going away that the momentous event was accomplished that will always remain the greatest glory of the Russian people. The lady who, afraid of being stopped by Count Rostopchin's orders, had already in June moved with her negroes and her women jesters from Moscow to her Saratov estate. With a vague consciousness that she was not Bonaparte's servant, was really simply and truly carrying out the great work which saved Russia. But Count Rostopchin, who knew, sorry, who now taunted those who left Moscow, and now had the government officers removed, now disturbed quite useless weapons to the drunken rabble, now had processions displaying the icons, and now forbade Father Augustine to remove icons or the relics of saints, now seized all private carts in Moscow, and on 106 Thirty-six of them removed the balloon that was being constructed by Lepich, now hinted that he would burn Moscow and related how he had set fire to his own house, now wrote a proclamation to the French solemnly upbraiding them for having destroyed his orphanage, now claimed the glory of having hinted that he would burn Moscow and now repudiated the deed, now ordered the people to catch all spies and bring them to him and now reproached them for doing so now expelled all the French residents from Moscow, and now allowed Madame Aubert Chalmay, the centre of the whole French colony in Moscow, to remain, but ordered the venerable old postmaster, Kliacherev, to be arrested and exiled for no particular offence, now assembled the people at the Three Hills to fight the French, and now, to get rid of them, handed over to them a man to be killed, and himself drove away by a back gate now declared that he would not survive the fall of Moscow, and now wrote French verses and albums concerning his share in the affair. This man did not understand the meaning of what was happening, but merely wanted to do something himself that would astonish people, to perform some patriot patriotically heroic feat, and like a child he made sport of the momentous and unavoidable event, the abandonment and burning of Moscow, and tried with his puny hand now to speed and now to stay. The enormous popular tide that bore him along with it. Poor. Oh my god. There you go, there's another chapter for you. And there, that was one sentence for like... Oh. Wow. I think that one sentence went for 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 4, 5, 26 lines of the book was one sentence. That's a hell of a Tolstoy right there. That's what you call a Tolstoy. All right. Thank you for listening to that. I'll see you tomorrow.